in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. These brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, Destin Melbarnes, Lizzie Haynes, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Welcome all you lords, ladies and knights to the Retro Movie Roundtable. Welcome to the show where we watch movies and then talk about them. I am your host, Russell Guest, and joining me today is my good friend and co-host from the Lone Star State, from deep in the heart of Texas, Mr. Dustin Melbarnes. How you doing, sir? Well, good evening, Russell. It is uh, the season. It's time to celebrate. It's finally time to get ready for Christmas time. All right. All right. All right. All right. All right. All right. Well, and on that note, coming to you from the Mastering McConaughey podcast, the master of McConaughey himself, Master Mark. Thank you. Thank you. I don't, I don't know. You can't, can't call me the master of McConaughey, but we're, we're getting there. No, you're Master Mark now. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I've got a I've got a podcast, Mastering McConaughey Podcast. Uh, my friend and I are we're going through the filmography and philosophy of Matthew McConaughey. Yeah, the first part about the philosophy is to just not wear a shirt, right? Well, if you have to, you gotta keep it unbuttoned. Yeah. His yeah. character <laughs> in the Lincoln commercials is not far from how he really talks. <laughs> and really expresses himself on the red carpet in interviews. Uh, he's a big deal down here, especially uh, near Austin. So what made you want to follow McConaughey? I'm guessing it's not the performances of Tiptoes and Fool's Gold that made you say, this guy needs a podcast. No, let's not talk about Tiptoes, okay? we, we got to save that. I, I didn't know about Tiptoes until I started looking, like preparing for the podcast. So no spoilers. I want, I want our listeners to come in fresh on that awful looking film um, <laughs> um yeah no it, it's it's my buddy uh best friend johnny we we live two hours apart and have for for a while now as we've you know gone further into adulthood and and we wanted a, a project to do together and and i think it was johnny that was like let's do a podcast and it's like okay what do we do and mcconaughey was like all right yeah sure let's do it we just kind of latched onto it and it's been really fun learning about him and and watching his movies he came up in the last episode that we just released and which was transformers and then we said who was the most transformative acting career that you can yeah. think of? and i think it's his career is interesting so you guys have not only the ability to choose a lot of interesting movies from a wide array of movies but i think one of the things that's interesting about mcconaughey is that you can kind of you know start to pick up on the evolution of him as an actor absolutely like he he started out in a in an unsolved mysteries episode, a Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie with Renee Zellweger, that nobody knows about. You know, so it was like it's really cool to to discover these things and 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 watch them. So, yeah, you know, one that gets overlooked a lot. Uh, I'm from West Virginia initially, so uh, when when he did We Are Marshall, that was one that started to catch my you know attention. You know, I sometimes pick up on these things slow of just like, oh, okay, the guy from. The rom-coms is doing this. And then I was worried. And then he did it justice. So, you know, he did a really good job on that one. So 
when I talk about the show, I'll often reference a movie that we did last year, uh, Sam Shepard flick called Frailty. And if I start talking about the show and talking about the movie, the kicker on it, if I'm actually trying to get a recommendation to stick, is say, hey, McConaughey's in it. Like, oh, okay, I'll watch it. <laughs> if you could go back, though, and selectively remove from memory and the theme of what we're doing today, if you could go back in time for the first time and watch a movie again, what movie are you choosing? I think my, my, my favorite movie consistently has been The Big Lebowski for a long time. <laughs> yeah. But I didn't like it the first time I watched it. But I was determined to figure it out and to enjoy it. I've introduced it to other people throughout the years and heard other people talk about it. And, you know, the consensus is either I watched it one time, I didn't get it, I don't want to watch it again. Or kind of the similar experience that I had where it's like, all right, I'm going to watch this again and just like figure this thing out. And, I, you know, sometimes it's the second or fifth viewing where it really clicks. You know, so I would, if if I could wipe somebody's memory of watching a movie, it would be that last viewing of The Big Lebowski where it clicks and you get it. Okay, okay. How about you, Dustin? The first thing I went with was I wish I could watch The Sixth Sense again, not knowing what you learn from watching that movie. That was my first option, but it got trumped by The Prestige from 2006. To be able to rewatch that, knowing nothing about it. I love that movie anyway. It's a top 10 movie for me. Being able to go back to it, not knowing anything about what happens, uh, on top of the star-studded cast, just, uh, you know, it's it's one of Nolan's earlier movies. I, I thought it was incredible. And I, I should just stop talking because I'd take up half the podcast. <laughs> I, I would really like to do Ghostbusters the first time with my wife. It's it's one of her favorite movies. And I just see Mary enjoy Ghostbusters for the first time would be amazing. I mean, I know I loved it as a kid. I, I really grew to like it more and more as it kept layering as an adult. I have wondered, like, what happens if you just get it as an adult? Obviously, it's still going to be great. But like, kind of like what you mentioned with The Big Lebowski. It's, it just There kept being more and more and more as I got older with it. Each time I kept seeing more in it. So... I wonder what it would be like to go back as an adult and see it. You know, I think I only saw that movie on like TBS. I grew up down here in Georgia and uh, it was only on TBS. So I didn't learn about the ghost human interaction scene <laughs> until, <laughs> until I was much older. We know what you're talking about. <laughs> we showed that to my son at Halloween time and my wife was right on it. She knows the movie like the back of her hand. She's like, we got a fast forward. I was like, we do. And she's like, <laughs> she's like yes. Now I'm like, Okay. Then I was like, oh, I forgot. Like like you said, I, I also have learned it from as being a kid. And I don't even remember that being in there. It's like you said, maybe they removed it for me. I don't know. But right. what is the last movie you saw, Mark? I uh, just watched Jackie Brown, a Quentin Tarantino film with Pam Greer. Uh-huh. Great movie. We covered that one. It's a good time. I'll have to find that episode. What movie are we covering today, Dustin? From 1988, four years after Ghostbusters, that is Scrooged. Starring Bill Murray, Karen Allen, John Forsyth, Bobcat Goldthwaite, Carol Kane, Robert Mitchum, Michael J. Pollard, and Alfre Woodward. So got a pretty heavy cast here for a comedy. 1988's the year. It's budgeted pretty heavy. $32 million for a comedy. It's a good hit in the box office. It comes in at 13th on the box office, grossing $60 million. It comes in just behind A Fish Called Wanda, hilarious movie, and ahead of Willow, 
And the number one movie that year for context was Rain Man in 1988. So IMDb gives Scrooge a 6.9. The critics did not necessarily really love it. It's at 69%. The audience score is, I would have thought this would have been a little bit higher. It's at 71%. The Academy Awards nominee for Best Makeup, it did lose to Beetlejuice, which that's fair. Now, critic Roger Ebert thought this was the worst adaptation of Christmas Carol he had ever seen. I don't know that the Hallmark Channel had really kicked it into high gear, Mm. but I mean, um, anyway, that was his opinion at the time. Mark, is that fair? You know, he's not always right. Uh, Yeah, he's not. No, no. King Ebert is not always right. I think he got it wrong. I love the modern take on A Christmas Carol. I think they did a great job. I know a lot of people who really come to this one. I think it's grown with its reputation over the years. I can't call it a cult classic when it comes at 13th in the box office and grosses that much money, but I feel like in a weird way, it hangs in there almost as if it is a cult classic for future generations in some ways. So you had seen this one before I can tell, but what was it like? When did you get it first at hand and how is it coming back to it today? You know, it came on TBS, so I'd see parts of it you know, as a kid. But uh, when I met my wife nine years ago, this movie, along with A Christmas Vacation, are movies that her family watches every year, you know, multiple times. So it, it came back into my life in a, in a big way. And I'll tell you, this time watching through, I thought I was going to be bored by it, but I was not. All right. It was a fun watch. <laughs> I watched it twice, three times a year for the last nine years. And I was, I was entertained by it from start to finish. It's pretty cool that you learn your families or your spouses, like what are the traditions in their household? What are the things they watch? Yeah. And like the, it, it really, you integrate in so many different ways throughout like a relationship and like, oh, we talked about it not being a cult classic, but I think that's because it's not in everyone's Christmas rotation. Hmm. I mean, it's not like it's a wonderful life per se, but I mean, I know a lot of people who keep this in their rotation fairly regularly. How about you, Dustin? Had you seen this one before? Yeah. Similar to Master Mark. I uh, I watched <laughs> this on TBS or USA or Comedy Central, not knowing what it was except for seeing the, the Bill Murray kind of wild hair with the cigar being lit by a skeletal hand. I'm like, what even is this? I probably didn't even really know when I first came across it that it was supposed to be a modern zany take on Christmas Carol because it just came across on the guide but it you know makes itself pretty apparent right away the thing that Ebert said about it being the worst version of it I think the worst versions of it are the plain Jane vanilla versions if you do something to a Christmas Carol the story is already incredible it's maybe one of the best especially for Christmas and so I don't lend any credence to the idea that it's one of the worst or it's the worst it's awesome so I come back to this every other year or so but it is, it's one that I almost know like the back of my hand. This was probably my 10th time watching it. I probably could have done the show without rewatching it, but I did. Uh, I'm glad that it was selected because this being on this show will do things to the way that you've sort of learned and come up with movies. And so I definitely had my eyes out for the high points. And then I got uh, sort of stricken by some of the other things I maybe hadn't noticed before. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, this one wasn't that long ago I did a crossover on Flashback Flicks on their Christmas episode to do Scrooge. So it really was pretty fresh for me. And I had studied it moderately. But I, you know, we do a deeper dive here. And so it was a lot of interesting content that I didn't really necessarily uncover about the creation 
of the making of this movie that I felt was interesting. We just recently covered What About Bob? It's a fun episode. It's one of my favorite movies. I might even say it's my, it might be my all time favorite. Bill Murray's my favorite com- comedic actor. Like he's just, I go I back sail. and again. I know. It's just, <laughs> it's such a good movie. Such a good movie. But like, what about Bob? I mean, making it is one of those things where I hope it doesn't ruin it for you. It, it's troubled and it's making, and this movie has its friction in it too. But doesn't mean that the product's not worthwhile. Doesn't mean that the friction that it took to create it wasn't there. So I had a lot of fun studying for this one, for sure. I got to say, I think it's holding up really well. We covered Network earlier this year, and it is way ahead of its time. It's prophetic in terms of like cultural, like, wow, that's the poignant points. This one might not be as as deeply thought-provoking as Network, but it is the exploitive nature of television, garnering fear from people in order to get viewers. This is still well ahead of the curve and how it is run. And so there's a level of humor in this that I think I think is aging better. Maybe shooting up your office goes down differently now. But <laughs> I mean, I think this is aging even better, I think. Like the animal content? That was, that was ahead of its time. You know, programming for dogs and cats. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I'm not saying straight up shows. I'm just saying throwing a piece of string every now and again. <laughs> I thought that was inspired. The, yeah. 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 The detective like dangles something from his fingers. <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot of these smaller things that are in here. And I think I want to point out too, like if you come in, Bill Murray's catalog is pretty diverse, actually, when you really start to think about it. If you come in just wanting yucks, this is a Christmas Carol. It is a dark story. I mean, there are a lot of people who I've heard the first time they get this go, that was heavier than I thought it was going to be. I'm like, well, I mean, the dude is a bad, <laughs> he's a really terrible dude. You have to make him likable in, in the end. And it's a redemption story. So yeah, his life has to be that rough to go back and look on to have the effect of you know, the turnaround. Yeah, to do it in the world that they put him in as a television executive uh, give you, gives you a lot of ammunition, a lot of fodder for how to make him nasty in his own way. Uh, the Ebenezer Scrooge way of the money lender or the, the, that has to come across. And I, exactly. I think it does. And the, the, I will say, it, I, I love that you're such a big fan of Bill Murray. I am as well, just not quite to your level. There are some things that with the source material of this, the Christmas Carol is already incredible. So if you're deriving a little bit, you're still working with just some incredible bones of a story. So there's not a lot of hard work, except for the hard work is getting it modern without being maybe too artistic or too vulgar or too X, Y, or Z. And I think this movie does it. I will say it's not his best. Uh, it is not. It is not Bill Murray's best holiday movie. Oh, yeah. You know it. Groundhog Day. Groundhog Day. Absolutely. Oh, holiday movie. I thought you were meant like holiday season for Christmas movie. I'm like, I am curious where you're going. But what other Christmas movie? Oh, yeah. Groundhog Day is great. But that's okay because Groundhog Day is a tour de force. But it's still something where I don't see anybody else leading this movie. That's fair. That's fair. And we are going to get into this and we, we are going to spoil this movie. So, uh, you know, Christmas carols movies, you probably know much of the storyline, but... There's parts of this you may not want spoiled for yourself still. So if you haven't seen it, you may want to go watch it. And we will be back after these messages. Welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast. I'm Bill. 
And I'm Jason, and this is the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. So whether you're a brain, a jock, a valley girl, or a Jedi, we've got some 80s classics for you. Do these movies stand the test of time? Are we discovering something new? Is there an 80s movie we're finally watching for the first time? Join us each week as we dive into the cinematic nostalgia that inspired and influenced a generation. From the hits to the cult classics, we'll discuss our earliest memories, favorite scenes, fun facts, and our not-so-favorite movie moments, too. It's the All 80s Movies Podcast, now available on all major streaming platforms. Please subscribe and happy listening. All right, we're back, and this is your final warning. There will be spoilers that lie ahead. Now, Dustin, for those who haven't seen Scrooge since 1988, do you want to refresh people's memories? Frank Cross is the youngest president in network TV, and he's got a live simulcast of a classic Christmas story ready to air on Christmas Eve. He got to his station by being selfish, aggressive, and cold, and the people around him must put up with his style or get thrown out to the curb. Fitting the season, and possibly due to his overindulgence in the Stolichnaya, Frank is visited by his former boss to warm him of three impending visits from the Dickens cadre of time-altering ghosts, with the hopes that he can change his ways before being doomed to suffer in the afterlife, and to potentially change the impact he's made on the world as a captain of industry, and to save his fizzled relationship with his long-lost love, Claire. In a creative retelling, The Ghost of Christmas Past is a New York cabbie, The Ghost of Christmas Present is a punchy fairy, and the ghost of Christmas yet to come is a classic representation of what men fear most. After his visions, and during the live production of his on-air extravaganza, and dodging the murderous intent of his fired employee, Elliot, Frank gives us the classic Scrooge 180 and changes for the better. God bless us, everyone. Wow. So Five stars. Thank you. No, thank you. <laughs> so, Mark, we've been here. We've done this before. We will keep retelling it over and over again. But Scrooge here, like you said, you like the modern adaptation. Why is this a good idea? Why is it working here? You know, I'll tell you, I kind of wish that the movie had given us more of uh, the night the reindeer died. (laughs) Yeah, a great way to start this film. Great way. Lee Majors, who was holding the same machine gun that Jesse Ventura held in Predator. The movie came on when I watched it, you know, two nights ago for the first time in a while. And I was like, what is this? I don't remember this. And my wife's like, no, you remember this. You remember this. Yep. So yeah, it's like a, just a jarring way to start the movie. It's kind of sets the tone of, of a little bit ridiculous. I have to say that like this movie starts off on fire. I, I would like more of the TV stuff to your point, like the yeah. failed programming. We covered UHF much earlier this year with this Weird Al movie where he runs a TV station. And I wish I had gotten to see Frank Cross doing a little more programming. That was very funny. I think it's really cool to do a comedy Christmas Carol like this. I think that this comedy, at this point, you, you haven't had that a lot. And so that was, that was pretty fresh, certainly for the time. Well, and a perfect lead for it. I hadn't thought of it as a story that doesn't make itself naturally acclimate to comedy and it is comedy first it is not a movie that is funny it's comedy first and it's great throughout and the choices that are made to transform the classic story are updated to 1988 pretty well but also i used the word zany earlier and maybe that is uh, a bit too much but the 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 
things in this that are funny, whether it's satire on the California like business guy, or whether it's satire on the old boss. I think he walks in like carrying his golf caddy from the afterlife. Yeah. Um, you've got Carol Kane playing a fairy who is extremely violent. And so we're, we've got no, notes of slapstick throughout the movie. Uh, a, a guy carrying a light post on his shoulder. You've got that poor woman that keeps getting knocked in, like things getting knocked oh, into her. Great. It's vulgar enough to to have like the blue language and it be okay. There's a lot going that way. This is the first time that posing that question like, hey, did you expect a comedy version? Let's look back to two years ago. Russell, we did a Muppet Christmas Carol, and a Muppet Christmas Carol is not a comedy. No, there's <laughs> you definitely know? funny things in it for sure. Right. So th- that's a great thing is, is this to view this as a comedic version, but it's also an adult version. Definitely. And Dustin, to your point, the perfect lead, right? Sometimes Bill Murray, I, I love Bill Murray, but sometimes it's like, okay, it's just Bill Murray being Bill Murray. But I feel like his kind of over-the-top performance really works to sell the comedy amongst the darkness, you know, where he's like yelling at his assistant, you know, if you can't work late, then I can't work late. And if I can't work late, then I can't work late, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Or like as he's ranting as he walks into the shelter and they think he's he's a bum off the street, you know? Yeah, it really sells just that little bit of comedy, uh, again, amongst the darkness. It requires a really good actor to do this and still be funny because yeah. you have to be funny. I mean, 75%, probably more, 90% of this movie, he's a jerk. You don't like him. Yeah, He's he's really mean. And so we have Bill Murray doing that and you still have to kind of like him and find what he's doing and what he's saying is funny, even though he's being a jerk. He's actually a jerk and like Ghostbusters, he's arrogant. He doesn't seem to be working nearly as hard as his friends. And he's just, he's out for women. And I mean, but he's cool. There's there's this coolness to him and what he's doing here. He's more of a straight up villain, but he's doing it with, he's not literally turning to the camera and winking at the camera. We somehow know that this is Bill Murray and this is a safe place and it's funny and watching him yell at people and hand towels out for Christmas gifts to people and, you know, and get only giving the VCRs to people who politically or professionally connected, then these are funny things that happen. Right. There are moments where I think very few other actors could have pulled this one off. And the other thing is, there's not a lot of funny people around him. And Bill Murray was worried to do this one. He, he had some nerves to be able to carry a whole movie on his shoulders like this because like Ghostbusters and, and Caddyshack and things that he had done before brilliantly hilarious movies they rely on an interchange of an ensemble and here you don't have a lot of other funny guys you have talented people I mean you got Robert Mitchum Carol Kane is is quite funny in this but I mean Karen Allen's not getting the laughs in here Alfred no. Woodward is not getting the laughs only Bobcat Goldthwait is really helping bill murray get large doses of laughter i think the milkman (laughs) (laughs) yeah he's snide he is exasperated like he's pushed past his normal everyday limits we do know that he's mean but we also see that the world he's in is cutthroat that the the world of climbing this corporate ladder to be the youngest president in network history that makes sense for why he is the way that he is 
it's hard to say that I see him as just Bill Murray because I also do see him. Oh, in this movie, he's Frank Cross and Frank Cross is mean. He's the jerk. I can see it being like, yeah, there's not a lot of uh, comedic bounce back from his scene partners because he's a tyrant and all he needs is the power to keep the people around him still around him for as long as they can put up with him. Yeah, I think when you do get somebody else that is a strong presence in the scene for instance uh let's think about like david johansson as the ghost of christmas past i think he's a big presence on screen and i think some of those scenes are the best because he has someone to kind of play with even though in those scenes he really is taking kind of a, a meeker side uh, i'm not going to go so far as to say he's a straight man but yeah most of the cast is sort of put in the perilous position of being the object of his attention but he does the caricature of a mean corporate guy so well for me i don't equate this to any other bill murray performance it's a special thing maybe it's because it's a holiday movie that it kind of exists outside of those normal venn diagrams for me mark do you feel like what bill murray is doing here in this is perhaps underappreciated by the critics he has to take you from pretty much hating this character to liking him and making you laugh throughout every step of it yeah you know, you kind of talked about it earlier, you know, that the critics were critical as to how dark the movie was, I guess. You know, mean-spirited. How, yeah, mean-spirited. Yeah, the the whole movie was. But, you know, as, as y'all have been talking about, uh, Bill Murray's character in particular. But, yeah, you you need to see him be mean yeah. and unlikable to a point. Because, yeah, it's it's a there's redemption at the end. And that's that's the whole point of the original story, right? Mm -hmm. Of Dickens story. So I, I think that, I think they did a great job with it. I think Eddie Murphy might've been somebody else who might've been capable of carrying this movie oh, wow. on, his on his shoulders like this. But that was the only other name at this point that made me sit there and go like, you know what? I've, I trust Eddie or I trust Bill Murray. You know, there aren't that many people who were, would have been able to make this work in my opinion. I wonder if Eddie Murphy is too cool to be mean. For some reason, Leslie Nielsen just jumped into my head, but I'm not sure if that works either. Uh, and too then... deadpan. I can't see him coming unhinged in the funny <laughs> no, way. No, like, exactly. Very funny to watch Bill Murray become unhinged. <laughs> yeah. And that is that is so much of this movie, too, is him uh, it just just sort of exploding at his circumstances. Yeah. Um, it, which in A Christmas Carol, Ebenezer uh, responds in fear, anguish, despair, and uh, regret. And while you do get the regret from our Frank Cross, it's also uh, you get his outbursts, you know, whether he's stuck under a sewer grate uh, yelling at the people walking above him or uh, God, you Mark, you mentioned that when he busts into the shelter. Yeah. Uh, there, and then, you know, there's a moment where you've got two other people in the shelter who are convinced he's some, I think, Broadway actor or some some famous Richard actor. Burton, yeah. Yeah, please give us some lines and like just a, an absurd a tangent away from the point of being in there uh, and you, you get some of those and some of the some of the things are necessary like uh, they show the ad of how they're going to get people to tune in for Scrooge the television spectacular and he reveals his and so you are given pretty early like oh this guy lives and breathes this like anything for the bottom dollar and uh, it's 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 so eye-opening to see like, uh, you are really convinced he is as bad as he is oh yeah they come in and say like there's a woman who died watching your ad for this christmas special and he's like 
That is wonderful. I'm so excited. Uh-huh. <laughs> Run it every half hour on the half hour. Uh-huh. You can't buy press like this. <laughs> oh, I mean, there's a darkness in that. And I don't think people, I clearly, when you want your Christmas carol, I guess you want warm tidings. But again, we have done it so many times. They don't stick very close to the source material. There are three ghosts and he is redeemed. His name is not Ebenezer. And they don't dive into all those key lines. He does say bah humbug. He He does does, say bah humbug. But I mean, he really doesn't even go around hating Christmas as directly. He doesn't appreciate it, but he like Scrooge literally hates Christmas. He has contempt for those who enjoy it. He is a true Grinch. We don't see that as much in this one. He's just really mean. He does say that, you know, Christmas is for kids and... He says he likes it because people like to watch TV for his good for his industry, but there's not the hatred of Christmas in him. Well, you could almost say that there might not be hatred, but there's almost more evil is that if you can say that to treat something that is that people have faith in and that that people like to think about as a joyous time and to use it for profit is something that, you know, you you might put Coca-Cola in the same realm. Once you start talking about Dustin versus corporations, I think we always know which side I'm going to go on. And the idea is, yeah, this guy is using Christmas as a tool to further his own career, and it's slimy. And that is where, you're right, it, it, he's not Ebenezer, he's not a moneylender, but we do have a Bob Cratchit-type character. Yes. We do have Frank Cross's brother, James, and we have the important ghost of Christmas present taking you to your your brother who you don't respect and you don't pay any attention to, but your loving brother toasts you and cares for you and your uh, life, even though you don't show any amount of integrity or respect to him. And then the, the very similar ghost of Christmas yet to come, which is going to show his own death. We don't get too much else than that i do i I guess there's two small vignettes the vignettes are very small and i'll actually get back to that later is that our ghost of christmas yet to come that aspect of the story has to share screen time with the the way that the he's interrupting the christmas spectacular and dealing with the murderous former employee who's trying to take him out that's a huge twist and a welcome one i think I mean, Bill Murray here is also, they really went to bat for him. Of the of that $30 million budget, $6 million of it went to Bill Murray. He hadn't been in a movie since, this is his first starring role since Ghostbusters. And he had just been like living in Paris. He had he tried to do a serious movie called Razor's Edge, and that didn't really pan out for him. He comes back from Paris, and he has his pick of the litter. It's Apparently, he turned down, 88's a good year for movies, by the way, but he turned down roles including Big, Cocktail, Caddyshack 2, which you might have thought would have been a hit, but smart on him to pass on being Carl Spackler for Caddyshack 2. <laughs> Poor Chevy Chase didn't get out of that one. Might be the worst sequel ever. Or sorry, the, might be the worst drop off from first movie to second movie that I can think of. And then even Rain Man. And he chooses this one. Again, they pay him $6 million. So, I mean, that's part of the reason he wanted to do this one. But there is great potential in taking a classic of Scrooge. He felt like the biggest challenge was carrying it on his own. He doesn't necessarily feel like it was a big victory for him. He says it's hard to talk about Scrooge because he had such a hard time making it. He felt like he was at odds with Richard Donner, who was the director on this one. That's one of those interesting things. Again, like we talked about him, what about Bob Dreyfus and he were at odds, not so much Frank Oz, the director, but here it's Donner and he are on very separate pages. Yeah, I can't. I'm shocked. 
Bill Murray at odds with somebody <laughs> on set? It's getting to be more of a common tale at this point, but yeah. I'm surprised he got through as much of his career. Like we've all known, for instance, Chevy Chase is hard to work with and is a jerk for decades. Right. Like I feel like in recent years, there's just been nothing but a long stream of like Bill Murray's actually got a massive temper. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I can't imagine Bill Murray in any of those other roles that you mentioned. And with this movie, he got the chance to really rework the script. You know, I think it'd be really funny and big. No, God, I just can't. I, yeah, maybe. I just can't see anybody other than Tom Hanks. Well, it's hard to do that when you've played it in yeah. an iconic way, for sure. But yeah, I think you. I think he. I think he would do a great job in that one too. But. I think I wouldn't get along with Richard Dreyfus. <laughs> what about Bob? I don't know. I don't know what it is, and I didn't think about it until thirty seconds ago. But I think I would be able to be polite to him for like. One wrong statement, and I'm just like, no, get away from me, short man. <laughs> I mean, Bill Murray took influence from Lauren Michaels on SNL. He said uh, Michael Orvitz and some of the other killers and sharks that he had met in the business were influencing him here. Uh, I don't get Lauren Michaels from this necessarily, but I think he nails this mean guy, but still being able to be... It's a difficult line to walk, and he walks it quite well, I think. Speaking of Lauren Michaels... The homeless guys in, in the shelter, when they call him Dick, you know, Richard Burton, that's a reference, apparently, to Bill Murray doing a sketch on SNL where he plays this Shakespearean actor, Richard Burton, which is a fun little Easter egg. That is funny. And Michael O'Donohue from the SNL crew, he pops into a couple of sketches in the early years. I'm a big SNL fan. I've gone back and watched a lot of the old content. Michael O'Donohue is a writer here, although Bill Murray signed on. Richard Donner wanted him, and he requested that the script be worked immediately. He said it was terrible. He said there was a lot I didn't like about in the remake of the story. They added the romantic element, and they built that up more, which I think that was a different take. And I like the part where he has to make that part of his life work. We have a younger Scrooge. He's not like an old, old man, pretty much at the end of his rope. So there's more to be gained from him turning his life around here. The family scenes were kind of reworked as well for Bill Murray, uh, per his input. The writers... Even though O'Donohue had worked with him before, as well as Mitch Glazer is another one of the ones. So both of them had worked with him before. They had a hard time corralling Bill Murray. He didn't stick to the script, which also is very Bill Murray. And I figured that they would have known that that's how he's going to operate. So right. you have a director with Donner who's not really a comedy director. This is the guy who did Superman, like the Christopher Reeve Superman. He did Lethal Weapon, which we covered. We did The Goonies. We did... You know, Maverick, I mean, The Omen. I mean, this is not really a comedy director. And here he is working with Bill Murray, who I think oftentimes comedies are undersold as difficult to make or lighter media. The Oscars don't necessarily pay attention to them, but it's actually really hard to do this and to control this and to make it to capture the magic. And Bill Murray goes way off script. He's improving constantly. And so Karen Allen said, I had a hard time. You know, I'm used to reading lines and he didn't read any of them. The way he would just basically throw the script up in the air and come in and he'll never do it the same way twice. So he's murder to edit. Like if you're an editor to try and make this all stitched together and look continuous, but it doesn't show. I don't think I said this with what about Bob just a, just a little a few weeks ago, but it's still true here. Do you see strife and conflict in the performance here? I generally don't research into movie production because I fall into the category of people where it might taint my enjoyment of a movie if I learn that everyone that made it was in hell. 
But the thing about him going off script for the last scene where he's giving his heartfelt sort of address Mm -hmm. to the world is not only mostly ad-libbed, but he's also intentionally not hitting his marks so that the camera is having a hard time following him. That's in part because that's what it would be like on TV if someone really did force the cameraman to have to manually follow them around. Right. And so in a way I'm thinking, is this genius or is it like the Jordan Clarkson who wants to be Kobe Bryant in the 18 minutes a game that he plays? Just you need it to win sometimes, but also when it's bad, it's bad. And if it mars your overall enjoyment of the movie, uh, I, it does not hear from me, but the experience of filming it, it's sad to hear. So f- for me, uh, I, I notice it at the very end of this movie. And I've noticed it before thinking that, wow, that it really seems like it's not even Frank Cross talking to us anymore, that it's Bill Murray talking to us, Mm -hmm. that he's like trying his best to, you know, he only wrote his class speech 10 minutes before the class started. And now he's trying to say it all out. And you guys, right? You're with me, right? Hey, come on. And it's, I don't know, that's something that I wasn't expecting to view so critically this time around. Yeah, that last bit has always stood out to me. And I just always thought like, wow, they did a great job making this seem like it was fresh, you know, coming off the dome. Like you said, the way he wouldn't hit his marks, you know, it was like, wow, they really made it look natural. Like they didn't know where he was going. So when I read, you know, that all the stuff that you just said, you know, that he just kind of went off. I I read, they said he just kind of went manic and they couldn't control him in that last scene. So when I rewatched today, like, okay, all these pauses that he's putting in, you know, he really is trying to think of the next thing he's going to say. Like, this is all fresh. So they didn't just make it look natural. It was natural. And I think it works. I think it works. But knowing that there was friction behind the scenes means that I'll actually never see it working again. To go back to your icebreaker question, Russell, I almost wish I could erase knowing that there was strife. I'm looking for it and I still don't see the, I think everybody's professional enough that it just doesn't show. I don't see Karen Allen struggling. I don't, I don't sit there and have her, sure. I don't see her discomfort. She said she felt uncomfortable, like trying to do ad libs. Like she, she reads her lines. That's how she operates as an actor. That's just a style difference. It doesn't mean Bill Murray is like a terrible person. It's just, you know, Richard Donner kept telling him to do it louder. You know, Michael O'Donoghue was frustrated as a writer, too. He said, Richard Donner does not understand comedy. He just took subtler elements that there are moments of humor to be had. He eliminated those completely, and he kept saying louder, faster. Again, the guy who directed Lethal Weapon. So, yeah. you know, loud and fast. That's, you know, that people people come to the box office to see Superman, you know, flying through the air, loud and fast. I mean, in fairness, this is, he has had massive success at this, but Bill Murray said, you know, he just did not enjoy working with them. He wanted to go off script and... Bill Murray said working with Donner was difficult and only a few single minutes of the day that could have been really, really great movie that there was a script in there that was good, but there's maybe one take of the movie that he really felt like he was proud of. And that he said it was made so fast, like everything was going too fast for him and that he kept telling him to do it louder, louder, louder. He said, I felt like Richard Donner was just deaf. Um, (laughs) So I do see that because there's moments where if people like Ebert might've been saying, where's the warmth? Like at the end, it is very fast and furious. Is it a time to slow down a little bit and look at the camera and say something nice? I have to ask myself, it is funny, but it also, it feels frantic. Like I said, you mentioned earlier, the the ghost of Christmas to come. 
is that the whole process is over very quickly. That is. And yeah, to follow along with the frantic pace, I think we're set up for a two hour movie. Yeah. And I think our setup, I'm going to go with the first hour is golden. It's when we get to our final 35 minutes that I do feel the pace and the frantic nature of, well, there's still a lot of this story that has to happen. If we're going to deviate from Christmas Carol to do all this other fun stuff, it's got, and now some of it is frantic by nature of the content, which yeah, being chased by someone with a double barrel shotgun, that, that should feel frantic, but uh, the resolution seems extremely rushed. There's a lot of that. I didn't want to focus on too much during the show because it would take away from my enjoyment. And this is still forever going to be a movie that I put on during Christmas time. But there are also time, like choices to spend time away from our brightest spots. There's some poignant stuff, like uh, when he sees the frozen guy in the grate holding the pocket watch, right? It's a good scene, but it did feel like uh, it was jarring to have it in the middle of some of the other fast stuff. Uh, and then um, we have our version of Tiny Tim, uh, not Mary Lee Renner, <laughs> but <laughs> but we have our little Calvin, right, who he hasn't talked since he saw his father killed five years before. Sometimes the stretch to modernity can feel present, like, oh, you tried. That, that I, I look at him like, oh, that, at least they tried. But unless it has any meaning to the movie, really, that's unique, it did seem like a bell or a whistle that was maybe unneeded for me. But I, I'm willing to overlook it in this sense because the overall take on this story is still one that is uh, just, just fun. And it, it's it, even with the added criticism that I will forever now have, Thanks to being part of the show, uh, it, it's all—it's always going to be—it's always going to be a classic. It's okay that the artist that creates something had to struggle for it. You know, the Sistine Chapel was not fun for Michelangelo to create, so it's an amazing piece of art, though. This is also uh, end of the '80s is when we still had comedies as our number one box office movie. Now it wasn't this year, but you know we had yeah we had several several years by the end of the eighties where like three of your top five were big budget comedies, and those aren't really made anymore. I'm Russell, sad. you and I'm, I have talked about I, that. I limit before. this so much. I know. Uh-huh. Yeah, it was like three men and a baby was number three, like hundred, oh, like, like four hundred million dollars or something. And it's like yeah, this is it's just not that anymore. But th- this one, you know, will stand out it, it's because it's a holiday movie that it does but uh, otherwise i'm not going to say that you know what as i was growing up that i really knew uh, carol kane's history or that i knew karen allen from anything other than Raiders. Jones. yeah yeah right to see her be warm in this movie animal house too by the way i mean yeah but i was two years old that's fair uh, so, <laughs> but, yeah I, I i think she brings a lot of warmth here yeah Mark, where would you rank this one in your Bill Murray standings for like your Bill Murray movies? Not Christmas movies, but Bill Murray movies. This is like asking me what my favorite food is. You know, I immediately blank on anything I've ever eaten. Um, <laughs> yeah. Like, is this in the upper tier? Like, is this the uh, upper echelon? Is this competing for your favorite Bill Murray movie? Or there's others that might... I don't really think of this as a Bill Murray movie. I think mm. of it as a Christmas movie. I like, I love his performance. Yeah. But like Groundhog Day is number one. I watch it every year. I've watched it probably 30 times when I was in middle school and high school. You know, I mean, I've seen this that movie so many times. 
he's fine in Ghostbusters. I know that may be an unpopular opinion. Like I'm not. I don't think you have much of a movie without him, but I mean, that's fine. Yeah, yeah that's. Yeah. And yeah, what about Bob? That was one of my favorites growing up. It's, yeah, it, it really holds up. Caddyshack, he's he's just got a small part there, but he's great. Oh, he's yeah. <laughs> he's worth his weight in the yeah. gold there. I, I'll be honest with you. I think some of the ones that you're naming have uncontrolled or wild Bill Murray allowed yeah. to roam free. They are deeply rich in lines that totally. make you sit there and just laugh. There's a moment in this movie like where he just dumps a bucket of water on like the waiter who he thinks is on fire. He just goes, I'm sorry, I thought you were Richard Pryor. Like, yep. like <laughs> that line is hilarious because like Richard Pryor set himself on fire. He had a drug habit. Like that's a problem. Like that's sorry, that, sorry, that's a sad thing, but like he made a really dark joke out of it. And it's like a small yeah. deadpan delivered thing. And this is just this is a regular Tuesday afternoon snack for Bill Murray. Like he's just he 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 can lay out that kind of comedy. Donner seemingly prevents a lot of that from entering this movie by choice undoubtedly because if you watch stripes it's like a machine gun like he just right. he, he is he's a very funny person he doesn't turn it off and you know ghostbusters is like that caddyshack given that he's not even on the screen for that much the amount of highly quotable memorable moments is just astounding and to your point what about bob and uh even if you watch something like the man who knew too little later and stuff like that oh yes and if you want to go with the other direction later in his career, things like Lost in Translation or Tenenbaums and things like that, he's not even on the screen that much, but he has these small things, these Murrayisms that even, you know, Donner's a tightly controlled director here, and that does not allow what is Murray's brilliant strongest suit to come through. He's not even hardly in Little Shop of Horrors for very long, Dustin. But, but he's a great character. But as it's the, brilliant. As the masochist. I will say, uh, you know, the, the Wes Anderson cameos are fair to say, like he's not in that much, but... Uh, Lost in Translation, I believe, with some of the other hosts on this show, it might it, that uh, that might not be held in such high esteem. I love that movie, and I think he's absolutely integral, and I, I think that changed my like it put him in another tier for me. Lost in Translation, and then I actually saw that after I had seen uh, The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. That one was a huge one, like on my Mount Rushmore of Bill Murray. It's, it's almost I don't know if all of them are led by Bill Murray. Strangely enough, I'm thinking about what was that one where he had a neighbor and he had the little kid, Saint Saint Vincent, I think. Yeah, yeah. Like th there's stuff where uh, I think he 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 almost exists larger than his roles because his roles sometimes are just like, <laughs> like wild and very fun. You know, for instance, like Stripes I saw as a kid, but like I'll I've never returned to it. So I, I, I don't know. It's, Should it's better it, as an adult. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, I, I am the guy who had everything introduced to him way too early by Pops. This is one that will, uh, it, it's absolutely uh, his his star, his show. Uh, and I, I guess I'm kind of glad that maybe what we are seeing on screen is him kind of steamrolling over any type of, don't try to corral me here, just let him cook. And I think he did. Yeah, that's what Harold Ramis and, you know, other directors who had worked with them, Frank Oz, et cetera, I think have said, you know, I mean, there's a degree of trust and letting it, letting the cameras roll. And we will sort this out in the editing room. And in fairness, Richard Donner is also directing a lot of major effects work. So this is a $30 million movie. And I think that shows too. I mean, I, I got to give Richard Donner credit. I mean, the scene like where they push him out the window. That's great. It still looks really good today, to be honest with you. It, it, it's a good moment. The, the character... It does. He, his former business partner is coming back from the dead. Like, this is really good wardrobe and makeup 
magic that's happening here. The giant hand that comes out of the screen to scoop him up. I mean, the 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 ghost of Christmas future, like the, all the little organs and stuff, like the little people like that are caught in his like, rib cage in there. And he's like, you know, there's actually a surprising amount of work. I see where they spent their $30 million is my point. I think Donner did deliver on these elements to it. It is a big production. I saw an interview with Donner and she was sitting there saying like, is this one of your biggest effort productions? Like there's a lot of effects and stuff in this movie. He goes, I made Superman, so no. But he's <laughs> like, no, it was Superman. But I mean, but I mean, um, but I know who you're talking to. So, um, but I mean, it was it was kind of a question. It was just like, I mean, have you seen his catalog? But I mean, uh, he does go to work on on the rest of the production. It just I don't think of it as a comedic director either so it's one of those things where i wish we could take those elements like you said the opening scene of like lee majors being the superhero to save christmas that's a big stunt scene like there's a lot of production that goes into that opening scene and it's really funny so i kind of besmirched donner on at one hand but i also want to sit there and say he brings value to this also that i don't know that a just straight up comedy director would Maybe Frank Oz could have done it, given all of his Lucas connections and stuff like that. And like Little Shop of Horrors was something like that. Maybe Frank Oz would have been the perfect man for the job because he can nail dark humor and warmth at the same time. Uh, again, he did it so well with Little Shop and What About Bob as a director. He might have just been too busy being Master Yoda and Miss Piggy, though, at that point. So I don't know. <laughs> so He's a Jedi master. You can't just conjure him up anytime you want to. <laughs> You've got to give Donner credit for giving the cast and crew Christmas off. Paramount wanted everybody to work through Christmas, just like very in the movie. Very Scroogey. <laughs> yeah. And Donner fired everybody for two days and then rehired them so that everybody could have Christmas off. I love know? it. So at least he takes That's care great. of his people, you know. Donner's actually not that big of a, like, he doesn't hate Murray. He, he'll he sit there and say he was only as difficult as any other actor that you deal with. I mean, they're all like, like he's like, they're all divas. Murray seems to have more... I guess stress about the process. He said, like he was stressed out. He was unhinged. You know, he he thought about giving up acting altogether. He had been just shacking up in Paris for a long time and just stepping away from it. I'm so glad he came back. He did some great work upon coming back. But I question Murray with all of his great work so seldom praises his own performances. So I, you know, he he'll sit there and say like Ghostbusters too. It's not as good as the first one, but it is still very good. And he'll think, I was like, I just, I regret doing that one. And I just wish I, you know, it wasn't any good. And I, I think it could have been better. It's just sitting there going like, wow, you're just one of those people who Michael Jordan's not happy with the lost three games. <laughs> like, he, like you rip off 30 wins and he can't stop thinking about, ah, I could have won that game in Indiana and, you know, on a Tuesday night. And it's like, you just are that great at what you do that you're so focused on how it could have been perfect. I do think there's plenty of like TV specific stuff. One of the fun things about watching any television show or uh, or movie about the production of TVs or movies is that you get to see kind of what it's like behind the camera a bit. There's a lot of like set design in this that from the people that are building the sets and the camera people and the you know calling for break and just how many people are up in the production room when Elliot Loudermilk comes in there with his, you know, takes his hostages, <laughs> um, the, the sheer size of the industry and the space of the studio, 
the poor mouse that they had to figure out how to put the antlers on. Yeah, yeah, that yeah, they had to call in a, a, a mouse specialist. They had to call in the guy, the like, you know, some shows have like, this is the cat wrangler, and they're gonna there's a cat yeah. in this scene, so you got to have this person. Right. I, I I do like the absurdity of the person hired to glue the antlers to the mouse brings that problem directly to the president of the network. Some of it seems unrealistic, but smushing the scope of the movie to where both Frank Cross and his California nemesis are both like running this show when I guess, where's the director? Where's any other producer? It's something I find that I, I, I like. I found that I like. I think the TV show 30 Rock got me interested in like, what does it look like to put a show together? And 30 Rock being classically a parody on NBC Studios and SNL. So seeing all that part was fun. Seeing the run me the ads for IBC. You're right, Russell, you started the show with this. We should have had more of it. But the hey, at Bill Murray's insistence, we needed a love story. This rubs Dustin the wrong way, by the way, Mark. Well, it's 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 in this one. I, I guess I will say it's kind of sweet. But uh, one of my things, uh, Mark, one of my things is uh, romantic love is very hard to do, and a lot of movies don't need it. I wasn't certain that this movie needed it, especially since some of the other things at the end of it, particular to a Christmas Carol or particular to this classic retelling of it, is maybe a little rushed, and maybe it's because we spent too much time on love lost but it, it is nice and warm at the end and uh i you know i'm happy i guess i maybe maybe the nickname lumpy just rubs me the wrong way i'm not sure <laughs> i think the romantic aspect is it's not overdone and i think it's i think it's necessary because he is such a bad guy such a he's so mean to his employees you know this woman that has been his assistant for years mm-hmm. he gives her a a washcloth as a bonus, you know. Doesn't even know that her husband died. Right. You I know. thought the black was just a style. Everybody wears <laughs> yeah, black. black. Everybody was wearing black, yeah. So I think that the romantic storyline sets him up as he he wasn't always this way. You know, he was always obsessed with TV, but he wasn't always so mean. And and then it gives him a way to have redemption or, or for the, the movie to show the redemption as y'all have been saying, I mean, the, the end was, was a little rushed. So, you know, to have his lady get his lady back, you know, that was a way to show redemption. I really liked how like he was so cold to your point, Mark, that it was through Claire that he found warmth and he almost had it and he blew it. And then that, that frustration that he had only further hardened him. And he had a bad upbringing and I think he was about to maybe overcome that, but the failure of that is one of the things that just galvanized him is like, I'm a villain. Now I'm super hard. I'm all work. And I've made this mistake and I have to steer into it as hard. I think he even mentions that at one point I've selected this path. That's fine. You know, mm-hmm. you know, it, hard, trying to talk himself out of, out of it in denial as he's just walking down the street, like a crazy person. Can't <laughs> <laughs> yeah. even off. find this place. Oh, yeah, scrape him off. What a line. <laughs> uh, you know, I think there's a, there's something that this movie does where it does establish like why Frank Cross has become how he did because he wasn't always like that. And they put like the mullet wig on him. Like, Hey, here he is at the office party. You know, you look back at other retellings of Christmas Carol and you see a young Ebenezer who is courting a woman. And what you see in this one is I really love the impact of the Frisbee, the dog show scene. (laughs) 
where he's just clawing, no pun intended, at trying to be relevant in this industry, doing whatever it takes. And he gets invited by the network president to go out to dinner. And his girlfriend, I guess at the time, you know, Claire says, well, we're having dinner with our best friends. And in the moment on this watch through, listening to it, I said, this guy has a chance to further his career and potentially increase his stake. You know, essentially the, the top rung of the ladder is there. And I'm, I'm thinking to myself, and I'm wondering how cold my heart's getting. And I think to myself, like, this guy is potentially about to become a millionaire. And you're like, oh, my best friends, we're having dinner with them. It's unfortunate they did, obviously they didn't have children to work with. Disappointing your best friends to advance your career when, like you said, we'll just celebrate tomorrow. I have to delay one night. It's just like, I got sick tonight or something like that. You can do it. And you're right. I think Karen Allen's character delivered the whole thing. But it had the weight of, I'm going to miss my child's Christmas. And that would be, now that, that would do it now. now it's I'm, Christmas Eve. Correct. Yeah. Exactly. So <laughs> That's what Claire was like. It's Christmas Eve. It only comes <laughs> once a year. Like, this is so special. That, that was a little out of place. It, it's hard to get the weight. Without yeah. having children, it's pretty hard to blow that or something like that. I don't know. Maybe you have to act like he dresses up as Santa for their kids or something like that. And like it's something there that they go. do every year. And like then he disappoints children. I don't know. I, it's really hard to get the, the gut punch that it needs to have there. You're right. They just gloss over that. And I think they would need you to. They fired the cinematographer. And then they bring in somebody else. But uh, so the cinematographer was fired five days into this and replaced by Michael Chapman. Michael Chapman is from the American New Wave of like the 1970s. He works with Scorsese and Ivan Rittman. This is a cinematographer from Taxi Driver, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, Raging Bull. But then this is like an unexpected thing. You know, he goes on to do comedies also later in his career as if he's like, I'm tired of all this serious stuff because... This is the beginning of like a switch. He does Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid with Steve Martin, The Man with Two Brains, Ghostbusters 2, Kindergarten Cop, then later The Fugitive, which is a whole nother random tangent. But I mean, it's really interesting to see how Mr. Oscar, you know, movie <laughs> all of a sudden here says comedy. I thought that was funny. The movie demanded, again, it's a big production. It demands good camera work and it delivers it. I just thought that was one of those interesting things. What about Bob had something like this too? Mr. Scorsese's cinematographer there as well popped into that one. So, Well, we, we talked about, you know, just a couple of weeks ago, the, the transformation of actors' careers into one thing into another. And I think there are professions where we really prioritize specialization. You know, I don't want my heart surgeon dabbling in knees. <laughs> but uh, the idea that the person who could put together Interstellar is going to try their hand at Dumb and Dumber 3 mm -hmm. is, who knows? There's a shot. My, my friend was, uh, he started watching the movie Tar. And I think your first 10 minutes of that, you get to see that this conductor is also like seemingly like a savant in fashion and other types of artistic endeavors and talented people are often talented in many ways 
And mm. so I'm for it. We as audiences and we, especially us, as this limited group of film critic podcast hosts, guys. We're fans. We're not critics. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> we like this. We like this, you're right. We're fans. We, we, we like the 61 percent fresh movie, like, and, and we really like it that much that we're going to talk about it for 90 minutes, as opposed to Ebert going on TV being like, "This is the worst Christmas yeah. Carol movie ever." Yeah, thumbs down. Yeah, right. we here at the round table are more likely to, you know, pull stuff like that out. But I think in general, I'm just like, give it a whirl. Open a bunch of other doors. Let's see what happens. And what we got here was. The Christmas classic. I think it's worth it. Yeah, I, I learned from Amanda Cusick. She she has a Substack that she puts out weekly called the Ninety Minute Movie. So she she'll just watch any movie that's around ninety minutes. You're I talking. Love it. D- D- Dustin calls it the tight ninety. A tight ninety. Yeah. It's what you need. Yes. Yeah. I, I, you got to share this with me, Mark. Yeah. So she reviewed uh, or wrote about the Vanilla Ice movie. Now I can't remember the name <laughs> of it. But that cinematographer, apparently, from this, like, it might be the worst movie ever made. You know, he did that movie. The next movie he did was Schindler's List. Yeah. (laughs) And in her Substack article, she talks about how, like, his... Cool as ice. Yeah, there you go. Cool as ice. Yeah, she talks about how you can see the cinematographer's talent. But she's like, well, maybe he was just... He was just trying to fill out his resume, you know? <laughs> you know, somebody else who's finding his feet here is Danny Elfman. The soundtrack is Danny Elfman. It shows in the beginning. And again, it's got a darker yes. tone throughout the movie. And he he even said, like, as at one point it was written, it was going to be a darker movie. And so I wrote the score for that. And I'm not sure that it was perfectly fitting for Some people will say this is a mismatch. I have come to like Danny Elfman so much with through his work with Tim Burton and through other things that he's done. Batman is my favorite superhero movie. It still is. And so... Danny Elfman is Mr. Atmosphere Enhancer. I mean, I'm always going to go to John Williams first for my, you know, amazing movie soundtracks, but I also really like Danny Elfman a whole lot. I'm a fan of it here. It might not be as iconic as Batman or Beetlejuice or... There's not a hook to Scrooge. Correct. But that's okay. It's, it's instantly recognizable if you've listened to Danny Elfman's stuff. We know his connection with Tim Burton, but aside from that, uh, it's it's instantly recognizable. Chorus stuff, falling strings. Me and Nathan had talks about him. I, I think it really does enhance this movie. I would not say the tone didn't match, but maybe that's also because you described it. It's kind of frantic, kind of hectic, this movie. And so I, I think that helps with it. But you can only get better when you include Danny Elfman. Yeah, the very first bit of music we hear they sound like carolers going la 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 you know and it's like it's it's frantic but it's also christmasy and yeah so you, there's like this sense that it's almost a horror movie like danger is near or time is running out but yeah. then it's also like carolers you know singing it extremely similar to the edward scissorhands vibe and yes, music very much so he's borrowed from his own stuff before for other movies hans zimmer does the same thing all the time but uh, it's it's good stuff. Does he get all those works that he we like? If he doesn't do that here, though, I'm all in. When you show me, there's a reason why on opening title screens, when you see music by Danny Elfman, if you've got keen ears, you probably already heard it. But when you see it, like, all right, I'm like sitting up in my seat now. <laughs> it is true. My my wife will be like, "This is this Danny Elfman?" And I'll be like, "I don't know." And then, yes, is she's 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 usually, she's usually right. So. Where it's like, I didn't realize this was Danny Elfman. I'm like, I don't, is it? And then 
Oh, yes. She's got the ear for it as well, like you do, Dustin. So why don't we hand out some superlatives, you guys? Ready. All right. Mark, who's your MVP of Scrooged? I've got two, but I'm going to give one the MVP and one best supporting actor. I am going to give Bobcat Goldthwait MVP. Ooh, nice. Well, we haven't talked about him a whole lot here. Then, So MVP is huge here. So Bobcat Goldthwait, awesome. He's he's a huge stand-up personality on stage. He's he's a tour de force. He's dialing it back and putting himself into this little timid character. Yeah, and he's still got the effective vo- voice that just goes all over the place. <laughs> I can't. I can't. Yeah. I cannot do a Goldthwait impression, but it is so funny just to hear him say regular sentences. Right. You know. So yeah, it's it's great to see him and to hear him in the very beginning when he's in this more serious role. And but yeah, when he he passes out into the garbage bags and people (laughs) rob him. He cannot enjoy his brown party liquor. I was going to say, he keeps having, he keeps trying to like become like a street drunk, but he keeps like dropping his bottle. Like a car drives by and splashes (laughs) his paper bag and it becomes wet and the bottle drops out the bottom. Right. I mean, somebody, somebody haphazardly drives by and smashes it and like, he can't get a drink to get drunk. I love it. It's so funny. Right. You can't even get drunk. Right. And then of course the scene with the double barrel shotgun and, you know, going after wascally wabbit or you know <laughs> yeah yeah he's he's great i've had a way worse day than you elliot <laughs> like, really <laughs> i lost my job i came home my, my wife my left, wife me. left me. yeah <laughs> uh, packed yeah. the children up and she left <laughs> <laughs> yeah i i think that's the scene that always stood out to me as a kid. And, and it's still for me, I, w- I would say he's the MVP. I love it when the president of the network calls in and he answers the phone. He's like, who's in charge there? <laughs> and, and he says, it's, it's all that you have flatulent butt. This is one of those instances where like, it's way funny. I've heard Will Ferrell say this, like when, when he's an anchor man, he said like, you know, we, we did several cuts of saying something really vulgar. And he said, but it was just way more funny to say something. I will punch you in your ovary. It's like, yeah, it's like, right. like, it like, sometimes to like, just, just goes like, butthead. Like, like you said, it's just. Butthead. Like, <laughs> 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 he said, he doesn't really feel this way about other men, but he feels this way about you. I don't know what he means. <laughs> You're right. I love it. He, this is the only other guy getting heavy doses of laughs, I think. Yeah. Uh, you know, again, Mr. West Coast coming into snatch up the job is humorous as a character within his right but i mean the california health plate right no dairy no dairy yeah no dairy in that right oh he's so deliciously awful yeah Uh, i'm here to help you out (laughs) like (laughs) so visibly (laughs) two-faced all right dustin how about you mvp uh it's the duo of mitch glazer and michael o'donohue uh, for uh, writing this in the screenplay is i i think to approach it as a comedy, you you actually helped me with this. Is to, to approach it with like, hey, you're gonna do a Christmas Carol, but it's gonna be funny. It's gonna be adult. Hey, good job. You can't give all the credit to Bill Murray here. Uh, you can't give all the credit to Donner here. It's, it's kind of out of his element. He's going to somewhere else. So I think it was a, uh, even though our lead kind of disregarded what was written for him, uh, the rest of what we get is I think brilliantly written 
O'Donoghue was a, a dark character himself, but uh, after yeah. the final scene, he thought Murray did it all wrong and was like, you know, super frantic. He's like, what was that? Jim Jones hour? <laughs> like, right. The, I, the I, Jim I, Jones I, family hour. Like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, so, yeah, he was frustrated with this movie, too. No, but I, I think the credit goes to our writers. That's fair. And Bill Murray did look at the script before they got there and said, this is bad. And Glazer and and uh, Donahue were brought in again for his connection through SNL. So, but I'm going Bill Murray. I think I've already showed my hand. I love Bill Murray a whole lot. So I don't need to say anymore. And I've been gushing on why he carries this movie. I don't think you have success without him here. There are some people, Jim Carrey is one of these people. Eddie Murphy is one of these people. I think Bill Murray is one of these people that you can take something that will absolutely fail and turn it into gold with somebody like that. Steve Martin's like that too. I was going to say Steve Martin. Thank you. I'm glad you did. Best supporting. You already pulled Goldthwaite out, Mark. So who would it be? Carol Kane. She is good. She's The voice is good. Like she's just so sweet and syrupy, but then there's moments of just violence. Yeah. She's got like this juvenile exuberance, you know, just a delight in inflicting pain and violence on Bill Murray. Yeah, she's a lot of fun. I I love her as an actor. She's in the new Star Trek Strange New Worlds. She plays a totally different character there, but... She kept apologizing and feeling really bad not wanting to rough <laughs> Bill Murray up, but he would encourage it, so he was like... And she, like, injured his lip, right? Like, Yeah, she yanked on his lip too hard. They had to stop filming for a while because they actually <laughs> hurt his lip too much when she just grabbed it, which, again, I, I got to say it's worth the pain because it, it is really funny on screen. Yeah. The toaster like the scene to- is... The, the toaster is absurd. I mean, <laughs> yes. Oh, look at this. It's toaster. Clang. <laughs> <laughs> it followed up by... That harpy hit me with a toaster. Oh, <laughs> like, oh no. All right, I got to say, I, th- I think her character was underwritten and underutilized. I think For there sure. must have been a lot of things left on the cutting room floor. And there was something that I noticed as an adult watching this compared to as a kid watching this was she actually says to him outside on the balcony, I, you know, I like it rough. If yeah. they would have gone a little different direction and made her a little more adult, that could have been way funnier and way better. Not trying to take anything away from what we have. O'Donohue and Glazer and Murray were advocating for an R rated to go darker and more. Should have been. To, 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 I agree. This is a PG-13, though, which is where, again, you're not going to drop $30 million into it and go R rated at this point, for sure. Yeah. R rated movies just did at this point in time didn't you know gross that you're confined to the 1980s pg-13 framework and i I don't know i think they played to it quite well but you guys kind of took my one and my two so Uh um yeah i've already cheered them both on i mean they're 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 right there so dustin how about you best supporting david johansson who is our new york cabbie he's also from the new york dolls the band yeah talented guy and he is such a bright spot in this movie. Uh, not like it needs shining things to pull it through. I, I love this movie. But uh, he, ev- everything he does is is so great. It also increases the spooky level when he arrives, which is fun. The choice to have his character like, oh, you can see the cab fare going back in time. That's pretty cool. 
And then you mix that kind of supernatural aspect with when he's sitting in the audience and the kids can't figure out what Frisbee the dog doesn't know what his gift is. And he's he's in the crowd. It's a bone. It's a bone. Just like all the kids. I, I it, it, it made me laugh out loud this time. It'll make me laugh out loud every time. I loved it. Give me to the IBC headquarters. What floor? What floor? Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. He is good. Did you know? This was originally intended to go to Sam Keniston. Yeah, I'm so glad it didn't. I'm really. I, I am. I, I think Keniston would have been good at this. Keniston guy. Oh, too, never had been. He would have been too loud and too too harsh for you. That's all he is. Right. I wasn't familiar with him. I I just saw that he was like a stand up comedian. But yeah, I think Johansson's face to me. I, I always thought he was a little person. Like kind of growing. Up. I can see that. He's and and the way they do the makeup too. Like mm-hmm. his face. It looks very unique. And then, but then you see him stand up. He's like just as tall as Bill Murray. But yeah, the way he played everything big, he's showing his teeth mm-hmm. and yeah, chewing on the cigar and ah, just the, the, the Brooklyn. Is it Brooklyn? That's I right. guess. Uh, yeah. You know, yeah, he plays it big and yeah, really stands out. He drives by Elliot and grabs one of the bottles of booze from him. Hey, thanks, pal. <laughs> I, I did not realize that until studying for this movie that, you know, that that is also the lead singer from the New York Dolls. So, I mean, I'm not used to seeing him not in drag. So it's like, you know, hidden gem, Bart. Tab soda. I saw that. <laughs> yes, that's a good one. Why are we advertising tab soda? Like, why are we paying for product placement for tab soda? Uh, but yeah, I think that's a hidden gem. That's a nice 80s thing that changed. I, there are a lot of those little things, like the amount of like VCR being like this, like, they were like $300 at the time. They were massively expensive, like nice things. We always joke of like for the price of a VCR, which is like probably yeah. $10 now. But here then is like this new state of the art <laughs> VCR. Yeah. I just thought it was odd that, oh, they made sure tab soda when it could have just been any anything. It could have been anything. Tab was the like the original diet soda. And then w- there's another thing that's kind of funny is I-, I noticed it was Tab and I thought it was funny, but I think what's funnier is that he's like just barely <laughs> pouring the Tab yeah. into his <laughs> giant tumbler of yeah, that, straight that stoli. Really <laughs> yeah, that is really funny. Hidden Jim Dustin. Uh, we actually brought it up. It's it's Danny Elfman's score. Is ah. that even though there's not a hook, it instantly elevates anything, and it really elevates this. And so I think. Maybe every other viewing of this, I'm always surprised. Like, oh yeah, oh yeah, Danny Elfman. So it's it's an instant winner. There's a lot of those atheism things, whether it be Robert Goulet and Mary Lou Retton, and yeah, I mean these. There, there are a actually, Bayou Christmas. Yeah, there are a lot of Goulet. These, there are actually a lot of things to point to Head and Gem, but I'm going to have to point to. I'm, I'm going to put my architecture hat on. The IBC building is the Seagram building in New York City, and it is a stunner. It is a beautiful building. The lobby and the elevators that he's in is designed by my favorite architect, Mies van der Rohe, in 1958. So there's my hidden gem. It's in a lot of car commercials. It's on a lot of media. So it's not the first time we've seen it on screen. Well, I did recognize that, or I seem to recognize that bank of elevators, you know, with the security desk right there. It's an icon. I can think of... Like maybe three other movies that I, yeah. you know, yeah, that it might have been. In. It gets used a lot. Recast, if you had to recast somebody else and put somebody else in their place, pretty good cast here. Mark, who's it going to be? I got two that I want to throw out there. First one, Carrie Allen. She doesn't really do it for me. She doesn't really do it for me in. That um, makes me so sad, but go. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, she doesn't really do it for me in Raiders either. 
Oh, that uh, makes me even sadder. Ooh, <laughs> spicy. So I would recast her with Phoebe Waller-Bridge. Yeah, Phoebe Waller-Bridge, I think, would, would have done a good job. Well, I prefer, could... I, I prefer Karen Allen's work in Indiana Jones to Phoebe Waller-Bridge's work in Indiana Jones. Oh. Yeah, no, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> no, uh, actually, we got to applaud our guest because we do have some guests who are just like, I don't want to recast anybody. And I'm like, no, no, no. You must play the game. <laughs> you are allowed to cheat and dip at it. Like some people are like, I can't recast any of the top three people. I'm like, then go get somebody out of like the fifth build person if you need to or whatever. So Dustin, I'm putting you Wait, in the can hot I seat. Put him, can I put oh, him in my second yeah, one? Oh, no, you've got yeah, to, yeah, yeah. even better. You make, up sen- all the, you make up for all the people who won't do it once. So. The censor lady, <laughs> I think. The, who gets hit all the time? I think Melissa McCarthy would <laughs> would be a great fit for that. She's great for anything. Yeah, you know, I'm always she'd have a small part, but she would just knock it out of the park. So, all right, thank you. I think Gilda Radner would have been pretty funny too. Mm. Dustin, recast. I liked John Glover as our Bryce Cummings, as our California guy, but I also thought that the timing would be right. For Shooter McGavin himself, Christopher McDonald, yeah, yeah, at 30 years old, would have been a perfect young executive, tall, imposing, handsome, slick, and then you make him the California guy, he would have been awesome to root against in this movie. Wow. It's too early for um, Rob Lowe, but that's a that, that feels very Rob Lowe for me. But he's not, I don't think he's broken through here at this point. Rob Lowe is perfect in Wayne's world as that. And that's yeah. only three years later than this. No, no, it's like six years later than this. I don't know. But Rob Lowe comes to my mind as another good person. You forget that Rob Lowe's not actually a sleazeball character that he always plays. Yeah. Like anytime I see him in interviews, I'm like, oh, you're like a regular person who's funny and like realizes all these characters you play are terrible. It's one of those things where like, <laughs> it's like, oh yeah, you're not actually a jerk. I forget that. <laughs> so he's too good at it. So right. Rob Lowe could play a young 30 year old executive in 2023. <laughs> yes. I mean, the man looks good. Yes. Yeah. He's frozen in time. <laughs> All right. Well then my recast, you're probably not going to like this Dustin. I, I, I did. Once I read Kennison could be, ghost of christmas past i wanted it I, I wanted him to yell at like scrooge like in scrooge's ear and be like you know oh oh oh, oh! like you know <laughs> and just i wanted that loud like brash you know back to school sam kennison <laughs> like yeah the raging anger so i just i find him very funny yeah it's a pass for me dog <laughs> best shot mark I liked the funeral scene, the cremation scene, and the, the shot where it's good. He's beside the casket, trying to keep it from going in the into the fire, and then he's just in the he's in there in mm-hmm. the oh in the casket the in the casket shot fire. looking at your feet was good. yeah coming back like that was a good shot. Those are a series of great shots in that scene. That's yeah. a great choice, Dustin. Best shot. First one I noticed on this rewatch was when he is mouthing the words to his scary commercial. Kind of puts it directly on his head. You can see the windows behind him. Uh, I thought that was that was pretty neat. And I don't know if I was looking for too many great shots because I already liked the movie a lot. But this one is the the first one that stood out to me this time. I think the finale shot is one of those ones that like it zooms out and captures the bigness of the crowd gathering around him as you guys pointed out you guys have complimented that a number of times i think that that energy at the end is being 
one of the shots in the movie. So I'm going to go back to the one where he's pushed through the glass and we actually see, it's uh, really good to see this, the street there. It looks good. It looks good. Those are practical effects doing a pretty sweet job. Runner up for me would be uh, the lighting that coming through the grate when he's alone in the sewer area. Mm-hmm. That's really pretty. Yeah. There, there's, there's more good looks here than you would think when you start to get into it. Best scene. Mark. I love Carol Kane with the toaster and in the nether regions. Yeah, that's awesome. You know, uh, yeah, that's that's got to be my my favorite scene. So, what is the what is the sign? Like, she's got a sign that says "ball ball kicker" of something. Oh, I don't remember. Uh, anyway, ball buster, and then she flies in. And, <laughs> that's right. You know, and then hits him with the toaster. Yeah, that that's I think that's like a best. Mortal Kombat Liu Kang bicycle kick, but in <laughs> but in a fairy dress. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, Justin, best scene. Uh, it is a, kind of a pivotal scene. I, I first liked it because I thought it was funny, but when I sort of recollected it, it's, it's the frisbee show with them in the audience. Because <laughs> it, it, it just it, it he's so funny. The, uh, our, our cabbie is so funny. And then uh, you get to see this is where the turn where he has two roads and he chooses his own career, not his girl. It's 20 years of unhappiness that made it that decision. This was the watch through. I was like, wow, this is a turning point in this movie. So I love that one. All right. My best scene, John Forsyth comes to meet him and the supernatural stuff starts to go down for the first time. This is very funny. I like pulling a gun out, shooting him, and then having all the, <laughs> all the uh, whiskey that he's drinking just pour out onto the table. I like the golf ball coming out of the back of his head with a rat in there. There's a lot of good sight gags in here. And I said it before, Murray coming unhinged is good. And he's, mm-hmm. he goes, he goes from zero to 90 fast here yeah, as yeah. you, as anybody would, if their dead boss started walking in the door and <laughs> talking to them. So he's lippy to him too. You know, the power, the women well, be honest, Lou, you paid for the women. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yes. So all of that scene that, we've seen retread so many times done with humor and it's really funny here. So that's going to be mine. And it's hard not to give it to when he comes out of the elevator and having his revelation and kisses Elliot Loudermouth. And he's, <laughs> he's like, you know, it's gone from being pursued with a gun to like putting his hand around him and being like, it's going to be louder milk and cross and, you're gonna, you're gonna be promoted. Do you want my old office? I don't like your office. <laughs> That's so you. That's so you. <laughs> <laughs> it's like so that's my other one that just i absolutely love too so best wardrobe or makeup moment mark I, i'm going back to when john forsyth comes in you know the the old it's boss really good i mean it could have looked awful you know but he's got pieces of skin like f- flaps hanging off that look great yeah the the mouse and the golf ball falling out the back of his head skin and, peeling off the bones yeah yeah i mean i i think that was but done up in like a Florida like golfing outfit. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, I think that was the best example of, of wardrobe and makeup. That's great. Dustin? It is the best example. It, it, but just for variety's sake, uh, I'll say that I liked the threatening nerd Bobcat Goldthwait, you know, with the bracers and the glasses. And the only thing missing was like a pocket protector. But to see him <laughs> kind of become unhinged as well. 
Uh, and Very he Anita never shower. Get, he never gets. I mean, apparently he does off screen, but on screen we just never. He never gets to enjoy that sip. It's so funny. <laughs> you you nailed it. I think I think that I mentioned this my favorite scene. So that's my favorite. You know, John Forsythe's makeup's amazing. So I, I guess I'll go down the list here a little bit too. I did enjoy Karen Allen's like Cruella Deville like scene, like where she's like, yeah, you know, like we don't see her doing that. So that's a poignant moment where like that kind of gets an emotional reaction out of you as she's repeating his words. So I, I thought the wardrobe and the coldness and the way that that was washed out was a good scene in there. And then I think I got to also, it's maybe not necessarily wardrobe. It might be more special effects, but I do love it when he gets on the elevator, he sees an actor playing death and he like, he breaks down crying and can't handle it. But then he gets back in the elevator again with the actual death and then he lifts up the cloak and there's the amazing ventriloquist work. Like there's like the, the, the detail in all these little like cartoonish, like, you know, tortured characters inside the red cage of death is very funny. They're blinking, they're moving their mouths and it's, it's really funny. And they're singing in the credits too, which I love. Yes, they are. So, yeah, there's one of those little monsters that I, I was like, that is a, that's a person with makeup. Like I don't, yeah, they did a great job. Yeah. Change one thing. If you had to change one thing, Mark. I've always hated to see our one homeless guy dead in the sewer. Hmm. It's always always made me feel bad. Like Cross can treat everybody poorly, but it's, you know, it's a little bit funny. You know, I know that it's a critical scene. I was going to say he realizes his cruelty in the present is still causing harm. The $2 might have saved his life. Exactly. You know, so I get that it's a critical part of the movie, but if I could take that out for myself, I think I would. That's fine. Yeah. Dustin, how about you? Change one thing. We need our final 40 minutes planned better. Our payoffs come with the setup of the movie and the ghost of Christmas past. Carol Kane's character is fun, but I think we didn't have enough time with her. Ghost of Christmas yet to come is not any different than any other retelling. So if we're gonna if we're gonna veer away from the classic story so much, do it with that too. When I was like seven years old, I was in a play that was a like an urban retelling of this, and my character was named Funky Future, who was like a rapper. This is in the nineties, <laughs> y'all. And so like even that play did something and they didn't do anything with that here. So I, I think the, the fun part of the hostage situation and the, the chaos of it, it, it feels right for the movie, but I just don't think they planned it. It's uh, the peak came too early for me in this movie uh, on this rewatch. What, what I realized is even though it's still a classic for me and I'll rewatch it a lot, this is going to be one of those Christmas movies I have on while like maybe I go outside and do some yard work or go and put the lights up or go and help in the kitchen. And I'm not really paying attention to the end because it's not striking as hard as it used to for me. Okay. So you and Joseph Simmons from run DMC being funky future. Funky future. <laughs> I don't even remember the name of this play, but I was in it. All right. No, it's, it's fair. I mean, they, they have feared greatly until that point. So, and I mentioned mine earlier. I just think it's okay to have that holiday warmth at the end. It's okay to be frantic, but then I need you to settle it down and I need you to, you know, find that kumbaya, you know, silent night moment. And that's where I think Christmas movies, you have to add a little bit of that sentimentality. And I'm not sure they did it 
Yeah, toss the farthings down to the kid to go buy the biggest turkey in town. Correct. (laughs) I I like watching Scrooge redeem himself. So, I mean, I want to swim in that a little bit longer. Yes, it feels good to watch Karen Allen beam that big smile that she has and to watch everything come to that little boy talking again. I like all of this, but it feels very rushed. And I just, I feel like this is a Christmas movie. We've gone through a lot of darkness and I can take all of that darkness, but I need you to give me the the warm fireside at at the finish. Yeah. I think if you do that, you can take this to another level for me. You know, I mentioned it with the icebreaker question, with the prestige. That's the rule. It's not enough to make the thing disappear. You got to bring it back. So the, all the darkness and all the veering away from the classic story, that's all great. And it was great, but bring it back. The way you described it, man, uh, bring us back to the, the warm fireside. That's what we, that's what we want. I, I want to see him in a soup kitchen handing out soup with Karen Allen and stuff like that. I want to see him passing out presents at, at the IBC Plaza and stuff like that. Yeah. You know, I, I want to see him give him his, his assistant a second washcloth. Sure. <laughs> it's the eighties. We have music montages. I'll settle for one of those even. I mean, so best quote, Mark. My best quote happens during Dustin's favorite scene or best scene. It happens when Claire is essentially breaking up with Frank. Uh-huh. She says, well, maybe we should separate for a while and just see how it goes. And he's not really paying attention to her. And she says, I, I know you've been under a lot of pressure. <laughs> yeah, it's been rough. And then he puts the, puts the dog head on. <laughs> funny retelling. It's funnier you retelling it, actually, than I, I remember it. That's good. <laughs> I, I love when he says, scare the dickens out of you. But then he calls right. it out, you know. He's like, come on, nobody gets that. Um, so this was another example of just kind of that dumb humor uh, <laughs> that I didn't. I watched this movie three times this week, and I I didn't catch it until I watched it you know, this, this most recent <laughs> and, time. Yeah. Yeah, it's been rough. Dustin, how about you? Best quote. It's a bone. Okay, so my, mine is, uh, I'll give you the, the setup. And we did tease it before the show. Well, I'm sure Charles Dickens would have wanted to see her nipples. And the carpenter goes, you can barely see them nipples. Yeah. See? And these guys are really looking. That's, that was mine as well. <laughs> It's Bill Murray just going, and see, these guys are really <laughs> These guys are for really looking. <laughs> like, I mean, it's the delivery. <laughs> it's good. I also love it. Like, is she going to be okay? Oh, yeah. It's, she's it's top. Great. She's top. I mean, she's professional. <laughs> so, yeah. It's, it's amazing that there aren't more of these. Like, when I looked through the quote log for this, I was sitting there going, like, for a Bill Murray movie, this is a little bit lighter than you would think. I mean... I I do love. A, I'm sorry. I thought you were Richard Pryor. Like, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, there normally are more of those little Murrayisms <laughs> yeah. in there, but I think I think he was held back from having more of them. So, all right, Mark, tell us where we can hear more from you on the Mastering McConaughey podcast. Yeah, you can find the podcast anywhere you want to listen to podcasts. Uh, you can find us on Instagram, Mastering M Pod. Uh, usually, post three or four audio clips from from every episode. A good place to start would be probably A Time to Kill or Contact. And those are pretty recent episodes. So you're not going to start people on, you're not going to start people on Fool's Gold? <laughs> no, we're going in chronological <laughs> order. So, yeah. Uh, <laughs> the uh, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre episode is, is also pretty good. Is he um, in Amistad? 
he is we just it, that releases on uh, november 20th so yeah all right well then i, I yeah i got my listening yeah. schedule ready then we have come full circle then mark on a five-star scale half-star intervals what do you give scrooge from 1988 as a christmas movie i want to watch i would give it four and a half stars uh just as a movie i think i would give it three and a half stars fair fair we've talked about the the problems with the movie yeah uh, but there's still plenty to delight you as a viewer Uh, it's entertaining so yeah i give it three and a half stars that's fair dustin how about you we really have spent time talking about the things that this maybe this movie doesn't accomplish as well as we'd like and even with all that i'm still gonna keep the score pretty high at four stars because this is a rewatch i know that factors into a lot of hosts rankings it's definitely a rewatch for me and i don't think that some of the things we've talked about tonight will linger with me that long when it's time for that warmth that fireside warmth you know maybe we wait for other movies to give us that for the comedy and for the sort of the adultness of it i think this is a welcome addition to any family's christmas rotation and i'm really glad that it is there as part like you said this is a very unique piece of bill murray's catalog and i wouldn't want to change that so i also appreciate it for what it is i have been hard on the director i i think i said if you give this to frank oz i think you will have a better movie i think the clock will be managed better i think the laughs will be managed better and i think people will probably have a better time on set also so i think donner shouldn't take the full blame of it i but i just feel like there are murrayisms that we're just not getting to to elevate this and the warmth that i want from a christmas movie is not there so those two things are what keeps it from being down my favorite version of a christmas carol we have covered it is the muppet christmas carol yeah i mean that is the one that will make you feel very warm and fuzzy (laughs) Uh, as fuzzy as a Muppet. So this is certainly in the rotation for me. It's just not, I don't know that it makes my top 10 Christmas movies, to be honest with you. I am glad that, that this movie, Scrooge, did not have any classic Charles Dickens narration because it would not have fit at all. To try to make that work would have been a failure. Uh, but Muppet Christmas Carol, it's an absolute uh, home run the way they include it there. For sure. And I actually think that's one of the more faithful tellings of it, in fairness. It's in period and stuff like that. So check out our episode on that. Dustin and I are both big fans of it. And Chad sits there in the dri- in the passenger seat with us going like, wow, you guys really liked it. <laughs> like, I mean, I liked it, but you guys really <laughs> like this movie. So. Yeah. <laughs> so, all right. Mark, thank you so much. It's been fun, man. Yeah, absolutely. I've, I've had a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. All right, Dustin, do you want to help me pick a movie for next time? I've got three movies for you. Option number one, Unaccompanied Minors from 2006. A group of unaccompanied minors bond while snowed in at a Midwestern Hoover International Airport during the holiday season and ultimately create a makeshift holiday themselves. Option number two, a classic Trading Places, 1983. A snobbish investor and a wily street con artist find their positions reversed as part of a bet by two callous millionaires. Or option number three, Gremlins from 1984. A young man inadvertently breaks three important rules concerning his new pet and unleashes a horde of malevolently mischievous monsters on a small town. What's it going to be? Well, the holiday cheers are going to continue, I can see here. And so I'm going to go with Gremlins. (laughs) Oh, yes. Yes. Well done. All right. I can't wait to listen to that episode.
Thank you, all the Lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. We invite you to reach out to us. We want to hear from you. So subscribe, rate, and review to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe on YouTube to us. Give us a like on Facebook, Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at, at movie underscore retro. Email us at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com. And producing and providing this podcast is fun but not free. We invite you to support the show at our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash retro movie roundtable. All contributions are much appreciated. It will go towards making the show better for you, the listeners. And we are putting more money into the show than we've ever put into it before. So all the support that you guys give us is much appreciated. It still comes out at a negative. So, I mean, we definitely... <laughs> We would love it if you would put us in the in the green or at least the black. So thank you so much. Um, <laughs> as always, thank you for listening. Be good to each other and watch more movies. Dustin? No, that's a space peanut. <laughs>